BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We've got a lot to get to. First, we're going to get to the matter at hand, President Trump. Here at Just the News, we've been covering that the president is continuing to press the GOP senators to fight the election results aggressively, like the Democrats would do, as he says. So the president is refusing to back down. And joining me this morning to walk through some of this is a legal advisor for President Trump, Mr. Jesse Banal, joining me again. Good morning, Jesse. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Good to see you and Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Same to you. Thank you. So let's turn to a couple tweets from the president. I want to get your reaction. So first, the the president, we know he's not shy. He says it's time for Republican senators to step up and fight for the presidency like the Democrats would do if they had actually won. The proof is irrefutable, massive late night ballot, mail-in ballot drops in swing states, stuffing the ballot boxes on video, double voters, dead voters. He goes on in another tweet. He says, fake signatures, illegal immigrant voters, banned Republican vote watchers, more votes than actual voters, check out Detroit and Philadelphia, and much more. The numbers are far greater than what is necessary to win the individual swing states and cannot even be contested. He goes on in another tweet. Courts are bad. The FBI and justice didn't do their job, and the United States election system looks like that of a third world country. Freedom of the press has been gone for a long time. It is fake news, and now we have big tech with Section 230 to deal with. But when it is all over and this period of time becomes just another ugly chapter in our country's history, we will win. So the president is not backing down, but I want to get your reaction because he keeps losing and affiliated groups also keep losing in the court. So what's your strategy going forward? Uh, that's, an, I think, an, an excellent point is um, that uh, while there have been a, a number of lawsuits have been brought, most of them have not been brought by the, the Trump campaign. And the problem is, is that even when the Trump campaign has brought lawsuits, the courts haven't actually decided those on the merits. So unfortunately, courts have abdicated their, their roles as neutral arbiters for far too long um, in this extremely important uh, election litigation that's going on. And that has to come to a stop. But more importantly now, we have to remember that the Constitution of the United States and the statutes of the United States don't rely on only the courts to decide election disputes. There's an entire system that's in place in order to make sure that we don't have an election that is stolen, like Joe Biden and his crooked party are trying to do right now trying to steal an election from the American people. And now it's going to be time for Congress to step up and stop that from happening. We know that um, Senator Johnson had hearings just uh, less than than two weeks ago to look into this. Um, I think we can all be optimistic right now that members of Congress understand that this is not a president that's just going to sit back and allow the American people to have their voices silenced by fraud. He is going to do everything he can to fight for us, to fight for the American people. And members of Congress are gonna understand here pretty quickly that they're gonna get on board or they're gonna get run over by by this train. 
So the president has tweeted out several times, we'll see you on January 6th. That's coming up very quickly. And that's when the new Congress is going to be seated. And that's when we've had Congressman Mo Brooks from Alabama. He's a Republican. He says he plans to challenge the Electoral College results. He needs somebody over in the Senate to be his companion challenger. There have been multiple House members who said they're going to join Mo Brooks. We have a senator-elect, Tommy Tuberville, also from Alabama, who says that he is considering he very well might join in the challenge. However, according to the way that it's set up, the challenge can only last for two hours, that there can only be debate in Congress for two hours, and then there has to be a vote. And looking at the numbers, there doesn't seem to be enough, especially in the House, because both House and Senate would have to vote to approve to stop the certification or stop the recognition of the Electoral College. So what will that do for you? Because you don't have the votes in the House. We're going to have to use every error in our constitutional quiver in, in order to, to get this done. And um, really what it's going to take is this. When members of Congress of both parties understand that the American people are not going to just sit back and let this happen, that's when they're more likely to get on board. Right now, I don't think they understand, uh, they fully understand the stakes at, at what's in play, that we just, they can just let this go through like almost every other election in American history. This is unlike any other election in American history in the extent, the wide extent of the voter fraud that's happened. And what I think all members of Congress are gonna understand is that if they turn their backs on President Trump, which really means they're turning their backs on the American voter, that's not something that's going to be forgotten in two years, in four years, and, and six years. The next time they're going to be up for, for re-election. And the one thing that, unfortunately, members of Congress that don't always have the, the courage to stand up for uh, the, the, the MAGA convictions that um, uh, President Trump has, and that a lot of members of Congress have, uh, if they don't have that particular courage to do that, what they're going to understand is that they will will pay the, the price at the ballot box. Um, uh, the American people are not going to sit back and, and just allow this to happen. And when you say quivers in the legislative uh, quiver, what do you mean specifically? Uh, arrows Sorry, arrows in, in the quiver. quiver. Sorry if, if I misspoke there. Um, no, no, what I, I, I think I, I mean on that is that um, the, the 12th Amendment has a, a process that's set up for how you uh, uh, go ahead and, and manage the, uh, uh, the votes of the, the Electoral College. Then you have um, statutes that have been adopted by Congress that have to be um, in line with uh, the United States Constitution. And then you have um, the various procedures of Congress. And the thing with almost every procedure in Congress is it's a default. It can be set aside. And when if there is a substantial amount of pressure from the American people, from the American voters on their individual members of Congress to make sure that this can't be the same railroad that we've seen from far too many courts where they refuse to decide this on the merits, where they refuse to decide this based on the overwhelming evidence of voter fraud. If the American people put that pressure on their member of Congress, I'm confident we can get this done. I'm confident that we can make sure that this election is not stolen. Do you believe, as the president has said, that justice, he puts the word justice in quotes, that justice has not been served here? And do you think William Barr is to blame here? 
Yeah, I, I do. I think that it's very unfortunate that the, the Department of Justice had a number of things it could have done right after the election um, or even before the election to go after this voter fraud and expose it. Um, and so I think it's especially important that um, at, that at this point now, uh, we actually go and uh, uh, the, uh, uh, um, Attorney General Rosen, acting Attorney General Rosen, fully um, investigates the issues of voter fraud that we know are out there, that the campaign has exposed without subpoenas and without warrants. And if we can uh, have the Department of Justice at this point fully engage on this to expose the, the voter fraud that is out there, something can still be done uh, about it. But it's very, very unfortunate um, that in the last month and a half, the Department of Justice has chosen not to act. And Jesse, when you say there are a number of things that he could have done, what are some of the specific measures he could have taken? Uh, and I mean, most importantly, they could have um, uh, had a, a special counsel investigation or any other investigation where a grand jury was opened. Subpoenas could have been used. Um, witnesses could have been brought in. Documents uh, could have been gotten. The FBI could have been knocking on people's doors to expose the fraud that we basically, in, for instance, in Nevada, fraud that we, we handed to them on a silver platter, information that they now have, that they can investigate. And um, if, if the Department of Justice could have used at that point um, all the, the tools that it has available as, uh, as the United States government, as the Department of Justice, as prosecutors, and if they could have had the FBI to go in and investigate, we could have uh, had far more um, uh, uh, exposure that you're going to have only when when the FBI starts uh, talking to people and prosecutors stop talking uh, start talking to people when just a campaign investigating with volunteers and with a few um, uh, lawyers um, it, it, when we weren't able to get those same that same information but still a wide breadth of information that that we've taken and exposed to courts and exposed to the United States Senate. Do you think there's a double standard between how the Department of Justice has operated? Because when it came to investigating with the Mueller report and investigating allegations of, quote, collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, there was considerable resources that were allocated by the Department of Justice for investigating this. But in this case, you have William Barr, who is very reticent. Do you think some of what he was doing was that he was overall trying to lower the temperature to make the DOJ depoliticized and to say, for example, he knew about, we just heard the news about this, that the DOJ knew about the Hunter Biden investigation months ago, even in the spring. And some surveys show that if Americans knew about this, this could have altered their vote. But William Barr, instead of going to the public or allowing to have someone below him go to the public the way Jim Comey went to the public, he chose not to. And some have said that that was admirable because he is depoliticizing the DOJ. So first talk about this. Do you believe there's a double standard? But then also, do you believe that the DOJ should be depoliticized? I believe the DOJ should absolutely be depoliticized. I also believe that it was a huge double standard and something that that we have. It's it's just been infuriating that we've done is this unilateral disarmament. Um, is that when Republicans uh, tend to be in charge, it's 
okay, we are, are going to uh, uh, try to bend over backwards to avoid politicizing um, the Department of Justice, including then sometimes not investigating or not fully investigating um, the, the crimes of the left, the many, many crimes of the left. But at the same time, when Democrats are in charge, and more importantly, even when you don't have Democrats in charge, and we saw that with the, the Mueller team, and we've seen this with the, the true swamp um, of, of too many people in the, the Department of Justice that have been trying to undermine this president and this administration, don't play by those same rules. And so the result then is, is it's always open season on conservatives and Republicans and when you have blatant corruption, blatant lawbreaking by the left, they just sweep it right under the rug. You can't do that under the guise of, uh, of depoliticizing the Department of Justice. That's not depoliticizing the Department of Justice at that point. It's turning a blind eye to fraud and corruption because you're afraid of what the media might say about that. Um, and it's most importantly, it's unilateral disarmament. It cannot stand. We need to have uh, people in, in law enforcement that are, are willing to go out and fight this corruption. Um, and that's obviously what, what the president wants and what the president is pushing for. And he is the head of the executive branch. And so we need people at the Department of Justice that are willing to take orders from their boss, from the president of the United States. And if we're able to do that, then we're going to be able to, to save this, this republic. Um, and we're going to be able to stop people from stealing uh, elections. Um, that's what needs to happen. Jesse, I want to ask you one last question in the time that we have together. I want to put a headline up here from Just the News. And it's looking at the fact that Michigan is considering sanctions against some lawyers who filed 2020 election challenges. The Michigan Attorney General, Dana Nessel, has said that th there's a threat here to lodge sanctions against some lawyers who filed legal challenges to the 2020 election results in her state. She says that the standard for these that she's going to sink to sanction is, quote, intentional misrepresentation in lawsuits. The quote was that I think we need to go back to a time where you can trust an attorney is making an accurate and truthful representation. What's your reaction to this? Do you think there were some attorneys who were intentionally misrepresenting? No, I, not that I've seen. I, I don't think that the intentional misrepresentations have not come from people fo uh, fighting voter fraud. The intentional misrepresentations have been coming from attorney generals like in Michigan and like in Nevada who are uh, really attempting to do nothing less than gaslight their constituents by saying there is no fraud. The f evidence of fraud is overwhelming. And they are, are now trying to, to be more aggressive in, in trying to silence the people that are exposing voter fraud. And that is absolutely unexcusable. It's going after people for um, uh, cases, uh, lawyers going after lawyers for cases that they think um, shouldn't be brought, that um, they've been very successful for having their friends in, in the media uh, just say over and over again that there's no evidence when the evidence is actually overwhelming. And uh, it's really a dangerous thing when you have attorney generals out there and others in the legal community that are trying to silence lawyers for bringing unpopular lawsuits. That is unacceptable in a, in a free society. And I don't care if it's uh, if it's lawyers on the, the Trump campaign that are being silenced or lawyers that are, are representing people accused of crimes um, that are, are being silenced. You cannot do that if you're going to live in, in the rule of law. And I think it's very dangerous what some of those lawyers uh, right now are like the, the Michigan Attorney General are trying to do to silence 
um, uh, this litigation and the facts from getting out. All right, Jesse Bernal, we appreciate your time this morning. Great seeing you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. All right, happy new year. You too. We'll be right back, folks, with more. Stay tuned. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us. We are broadcasting home from the holidays. I wanna go through a few headlines here to keep you updated on the latest that we have here at Just the News. First, let's turn it over to Nashville where we know that according to our reporting by Susan Katz-Keating, my colleague, that the Nashville suspect acted alone and died during the RV explosion, according to the officials. Reportedly, the man who launched the Christmas morning bomb in Nashville died in the explosion. They said, the authorities said Sunday late in the afternoon. Now, a DNA test identified the bomber as Anthony Quinn Warner, according to the Associated Press, and no one else was involved in the incident. Our thoughts and our prayers go out to all those who were affected by this deadly uh, shooting or this bombing. Um, and certainly the intention there was to wreak havoc on a very peaceful morning, Christmas morning. Uh, but certainly we know that Christmas is more about more than any one person and any one act of violence. And we wish them all the best here during the season of healing and recovery. Let's move on to another headline here. Again, more violence across the country, this time in Illinois. A serviceman has been charged in a mass shooting at an Illinois bowling alley that left three dead. This active duty serviceman from Florida was charged Sunday with the murder and attempted murder in a shooting at a Rockford, Illinois bowling alley that authorities said was completely random. So there was no intent here. This man was from Florida. He came up to Rockford, Illinois, which is in the northern part of the state, and he didn't know anyone. He just reportedly did this completely randomly. His name is Duke Webb. He's age 37, and he was arrested Saturday night at the scene of the shooting and charged with three counts of murder and three counts of attempted first-degree murder. The Rockford police chief, Dan O'Shea, said that we believe this is a completely random act. And again, our hearts go out to those who are hurting, those who are in pain, and all those who lost loved ones, our hearts go to them. Let's move also to the election and an analysis that our team put out looking at the demographics of 2020. Now, over and over, you heard in the media that President Trump was a racist, that he was a xenophobe, that he hated minorities. And funny enough, a lot of Americans who are minorities disagreed. So in particular, we looked at the Hispanic and Asian vote, which shifted very sharply to the right during the 2020 presidential election. President Trump said throughout the campaign that the Democratic Party took African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians for granted, and the message has apparently gotten through to this increasingly powerful voting bloc. Details of this voter analysis by the New York Times were released last week, and it showed a massive influx of votes for Trump from the blocs. And Democrat Joe Biden still got the majority of votes from the groups in cities like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Miami, and Philadelphia, 
there were huge swaths of the groups that voted for Republicans. The New York Times even said that the red shifts, along with a wave of blue shifts in Republican and white areas, have scrambled the conventional wisdom of American politics and could presage a new electoral calculus for the parties. So when you go through and you compare the 2020 vote, Trump's share of the vote from Latinos rose by a lot, a lot in some of these big cities. So for example, in Houston, the Trump share of the vote from Latinos and Asians rose by 59% in Houston, 61% in Miami, 59% in San Diego, 94% in San Jose, that's Northern California, 70% in Orlando, 111% in Philadelphia, 33% in Dallas, 64% in Phoenix, and 54% in Las Vegas. Those are some pretty impressive numbers if you are saying that the president was hopelessly racist, but the American people disagreed themselves and they did it at the ballot box. I wanna move also to a video here that we've got from Steve Cortez, who has been a senior legal advisor or a senior advisor to the Trump campaign, political strategist. We've got a video from him, let's take a watch. The United States faces an unprecedented risk right now, the potential that in just a few weeks, we would swear in as President of the United States, Joe Biden, and potentially have a commander-in-chief who was compromised by the most dangerous nemesis of the United States, the Chinese Communist Party. Now, Biden has promised that his family will have no interests in business abroad, but we know that he's lying. There's new reporting by the Wall Street Journal that corroborates earlier reporting from Daily Caller. Hunter Biden, as of this day, still owns 10% in Bohai Harvest, which is a giant investment fund. It's a partnership with the Chinese Communist Party that was begun after Hunter Biden went on Air Force Two, on our plane, on an official state visit with his then vice president father. Got a billion and a half dollar investment from the Chinese communists after that trip. He still owns it as of today. Now here's the other point that's relevant for us because Hunter Biden has always been immaterial. He's a bag man for the Biden cartel. Joe Biden is the head of the cartel. The question for us is how much of this 10% belongs to the big guy? Because we know that the big guy is in fact Joe Biden. And that's Steve Cortez, who is a senior advisor for the Trump campaign, looking at these allegations of corruption around the Biden family. What's important to remember here is that the Biden family, as he mentioned, they have said that when, if and when, it looks very more likely every day that it will be President Joe Biden. If Joe Biden is sworn in, the family has said that they will not have conflicts of interest, that they will step away from China. The big question is, will that actually happen? And if it doesn't, what are the mechanisms to hold this family accountable? The other big question is the impeachment of President Trump. When you look at the genesis of why President Trump was impeached, the allegation was that he was doing a pay for play or a tit for tat basically with the head of the Ukrainian government to say, hey, you investigate my political rival, Joe Biden, and then I will do you favors. I will give you money. I'll give you weapons. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. When in actuality, we know the truth now that there was substantial evidence that Hunter Biden was engaged in some form of corruption or some form of untoward influence peddling in Ukraine. So this begs the question then, was the impeachment, the entire thing, Mitt Romney's vote, the sole Republican 
to vote for impeachment of President Trump? Should, should this all be undone? Is this all null and void because of the truth that we now know about the Hunter Biden family? And not just Hunter Biden, obviously, as Steve Cortez said, the big guy himself, Joe Biden. I also want to mention on my program last week, we had on the head of the Uyghur government in exile. Now, the Uyghurs are a Muslim minority in China. They are persecuted. They're in the northwestern region of China. And we have word, report after report, that at least a million, possibly more Uyghurs have been locked into what some describe as concentration camps. Certainly, these are forced labor camps. We've seen reports over and over also that these folks, these Uyghur minority, they have been forced into the cotton fields. Joe Biden, his son, Hunter Biden, and we know this has been confirmed by the Wall Street Journal and other places, Hunter Biden has invested in technology companies that have been used to surveil and to captivate these Uyghur minorities. So the question is, Hunter Biden, will you release the money that you put into this? Will you give back any dirty profits that you got off this? We'll be waiting for these answers. Meantime, I want you to stick around. We'll be right back. We have Joe Grogan, who was President Trump's former director of the White House Domestic Policy Council. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us. Home for the holidays. Hope that you are enjoying your holidays, but glad you're staying tuned in here to what's happening in the world. Joining me is Joe Grogan. He's the former director of White House Domestic Policy Council for President Trump. Good morning, Joe. So I'm going to put a headline up here from Just the News. We are looking at how President Trump over the weekend yesterday, he averted the shutdown. He signed the $2.3 trillion spending bill and COVID relief bill. He says that despite his misgivings about wasteful spending and low stimulus payments in the bill, Trump said he signed the legislation because, quote, I have an obligation to protect the people of our country from further economic devastation. He said, however, more money is coming as Congress votes this week on larger checks. Now, a lot of conservatives said that they really didn't like what was in this bill. In fact, the president himself came out and basically gave what many said was a veto threat over the bill because there was a lot of foreign aid, for example, I think it was 1.2, 1.3 billion going over to Egypt, for example, but he went ahead and signed it anyway. So why do you think he did that? Even though he said he thinks that it had a lot of pork in there. I think he was out of time and he knew that the Republican Senate and the House wouldn't be able to agree on a, on a bill and get it to his desk in time to, to not have a lot of Americans uh, suffering pain right around the holidays. It's interesting to see him. I mean, he's losing capital with each passing day. Frankly, he's he's less than 30 days, just a little over 20 days before he leaves the White House. And, uh, you know, th there was no way they were going to move quickly enough to sign this bill uh, or a new bill and, and, and negotiate a new bill. I, I am skeptical, to be honest with you, that he's going to be able to get even the bigger checks as we head in to January because there's not a lot of support for uh, on the conservative side for this. And it'll be interesting to see if the Democrats can restrain themselves from more pork 
in there. And frankly, many Republicans will want to put other extraneous items in there that will uh, infuriate the president even more. So it's very difficult for me to see another bill getting done with more money flowing before Joe Biden takes office. Do you think that there would have been a veto-proof majority in the, I believe in the Senate, there was a veto-proof majority. I'm not sure about the House. So even if the president had vetoed it, would both houses of Congress gone ahead and overridden him, in which case that would have made him look impotent? Yeah, that's certainly that's certainly the rumor and messages were relayed to the White House to that effect. That's that was my understanding as well, that th there were senators, including Senate leadership, saying that they had the votes to override a veto. And it would have been a tremendous humiliation for the president uh, if that were to happen. I, but the the important thing is, you know, it's signed. Uh, and the money will begin to flow to the American people. The end game here was messy, as often, often these things are, but the bill signed, money will be flowing, and uh, I think that the Republican Senate and the, and the Democratic House, frankly, they're looking forward to the new crop that's going to come in the first week of January. A lot of these senators are not going to be coming back. They're already cleaned out of their offices, and their staff is moving on. So... You, you've got to deal with all this new transition and orientation for new members. And I don't know that a lot of them are going to be jumping through hoops to pass a new bill for uh, President Trump. I want to turn, since you're an expert on domestic policy, we just heard word about a new COVID strain coming out of London. However, the word is that this is not any more serious than the common version, according to the White House testing chief. Now, this new strain of coronavirus was detected, detected in the UK is not more threatening than the version that currently is predominating here throughout the world. So what's your read on this? We, over the weekend, the United States put restrictions and said that a vaccine needed to be taken by someone who was coming here from the UK. Is that your understanding? Is this something that if you're going to be traveling from the UK, are you going to be required to be vaccinated here in the United States? I think it's a little bit too early to figure out whether or not the, there will be a formal mandate for vaccination for people traveling internationally uh, from country to country. I think that's still under evaluation. I think it is really good news, though, that this strain is not more deadly. It, it's interesting. I mean, viruses, they want to live, right? They want to be transmitted. And the more deadly they are, the less uh, likely they are to be transmitted. They want people to be asymptomatic. They want them to be mildly sick and very infectious. And that's one of the reasons why COVID has spread so much. It would have been a little bit um, not unusual and, and nobody should, should be surprised with this virus because it has surprised us over and over and over again. And it is very nasty, but I think people should, have been, should be assured that it would be atypical if this virus were getting uh, more deadly right now. I think most of the experts were, would be thinking that it would be weakening and getting more infectious. Uh, so mutations are going to happen. And that is something to be worried about as we make sure that these vaccines uh, work now and on new strains that may develop. But I think people should be reassured that uh, this mutation uh, shouldn't be any more deadly than, than the uh, one we've been dealing with. And just one other point is it's mutated a bunch of times already. I mean, it mutated, it's different. The version that was in China is different than what ended up 
in Europe and what ended up in the United States on the East Coast and from China on the West Coast. So there's been a lot of differences of this virus, but the vaccine looks to be just as effective amongst all of them, but it all needs to be evaluated in the, in the real world deployment moving forward. Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and broadcasting home from the holidays. I hope that you had a wonderful Christmas. If you're celebrating Christmas, wonderful Hanukkah, wonderful Kwanzaa, and just a wonderful holiday season. And I wanted to let your our viewers know about a charity that I think is worth elevating just to take a look. It's the year end giving time when a lot of charities are really making up that difference between the budget goal and budget reality. And especially here during the coronavirus, when a lot of businesses and a lot of especially nonprofits have been hit because let's be honest, the charities really are down, flowing downhill. Uh, they're downhill from the businesses. So if the business isn't going well, then a lot of times then the charities don't go well either. And so we're seeing contributions have been going down because folks have been struggling and that's understandable. And I'm hoping that we're going to get Amanda Clue on the line here. But if not, I will let you know more about what she does. She's the Director of Inclusive Recreation Standards and Accreditation with a nonprofit that is called the National Inclusion Project. And what the National Inclusion Project does is they help people, young people, children who have disabilities, attend summer camps and other experiences where they are able to have social bonding, where they're able to experience life at camp, and where they're able to just be treated as a human being. Because so often when these children have disabilities, they are alienated, they're treated as something other, and they're excluded. And in some cases, I would say probably in most or all cases, it's not that excluding these children is done spitefully, but in many cases it's done because there just isn't enough resource to go around. There isn't enough training or is there isn't enough people who have the specialty to take care uh, of these children and to give them the experience that they need to be able to have a wonderful time at camp. And this National Inclusion Project is near and dear to my heart because it was founded by my friend Clay Aiken. And I'm sure you know Clay Aiken from American Idol. He's also, he likes to joke that he's America's number one, number two, because you'll recall he came in second place on American Idol. Then he went on later on to become second place on Celebrity Apprentice. You all know who was hosting Celebrity Apprentice. Oh yeah, Donald Trump, little guy, big guy. You remember a little name of a big, very big guy, Donald Trump. And so Clay got to know the family then when he came in second place. He came in second place to Arsenio Hall on Celebrity Apprentice. Years later, Trump Post-Trump years, Clay went on and he decided to enter public service. And he actually ran for Congress down in his home state of North Carolina. And down there in North Carolina, he chose to run as a Democrat. Uh, he was running in a very conservative district. And he was the Democratic nominee. And he, guess what, came in second place to the Republican. So that's his claim to fame is he's America's number one, number two. But the other thing that some folks don't know about his background is that before all of the celebrity and before all of the singing fame and before Celebrity Apprentice, before the TV fame, Clay Aiken actually was a special education teacher. And so that's part of why he's so passionate about making sure the kids who have disabilities are included. And so, again, this is a charity that I think is really worth flagging for you guys 
It's called the National Inclusion Project. It is nationwide and they work with kids around the country who have disabilities. If you're looking, if you find it in your heart, you have some resources to give here at the end of the year. And even if you can't give resources, maybe you can give some time and maybe if you don't have time for this specific organization or if they, they don't have uh, volunteer needs for that, finding somewhere else where you can be a volunteer for someone with special needs. There's, for example, the Buddies, you know, the Best Buddies Project or the Big Brothers, where you can really take somebody under your wing who has special needs. And I can tell you, as someone who, in my family, my aunt uh, had Down syndrome and a sister of mine had Down syndrome also, that people say that children who have special needs are a burden. They say that these children are, in many cases, for example, over in Europe, I was just reading how in Denmark that the overwhelming majority of women, when they find out that they are pregnant with a Down syndrome child, they abort the child because they're allowed to do that. They're allowed to do these genetic screenings where you can abort because of what they call a genetic defect. And so there are so few Down syndrome babies in Denmark because they are perceived to be as a burden. And I can tell you as someone who has had Down syndrome in my family, that it is a joy and it is something that not just our family, but over and over you hear that families say that people who have a Down syndrome member of their family, this person, this, this brother, the sister brings so much more to the family than they ever are taking. And that it really brings this deep joy and a lasting sense of purpose, a lasting sense of, of happiness. Is it always easy? Obviously not, but the best things in life are not easy. The best things are worth sacrificing. And so that's what the National Inclusion Project is all about, is making sure that kids who have disabilities are able to participate, are able to make wonderful childhood memories. And again, I hope you'll take a look. Uh, it looks like Amanda Clue will have to have her on at a later date, but I want her to be able to share more directly from her own words about what the National Inclusion Project does, and then you can learn even more about it. So in the meantime, go to their website, just Google the National Inclusion Project, and stick around here on Just the News AM. I'll be right back. I want to close the show with putting some food for thought here, uh, going in more depth about this headline that we put up about Fauci. Dr. Fauci is saying that he altered public science estimates based on opinion polls. Dr. Anthony Fauci appeared to admit last week that he has deliberately misled the public regarding the coronavirus for the second time since the pandemic began. In an interview on Christmas Eve with the New York Times, Fauci acknowledged he had offered a lower estimate of the level of herd immunity necessary to stop the COVID-19 pandemic because he thought Americans would be discouraged by hearing his true thoughts on the issue. He recently raised his estimate on the herd immunity threshold, partly based on new science, the newspaper reported, and partly on his gut feeling that the country is finally ready to hear what he really thinks. At the outset of the pandemic, Fauci, like most public health authorities, advised against wearing face masks, telling the public that doing so was unnecessary unless an individual was showing symptoms of COVID-19. Fauci, in subsequent weeks and months, made a sharp 180-degree turn on the subject of masks, advocating their universal usage and arguing that mask wearing is critical to stopping the spread of COVID-19. So this was a very telling story here because 
it showed over and over to a lot of folks who say that President Trump is not treated fairly by the media, that this is another instance of a double standard. <laughs> <laughs>